Luke 2, 8 to 14. I'll let you get to that. Luke 2, 8 to 14. Is it back? No, okay. And I'll uh, tell you what verses I'm at so you can fake follow along if you can. <laughs> All right, here we go. Il y avait dans cette même région des bergers qui passaient dans les champs les veilles de la nuit pour garder leurs troupeaux. Verse 9. L'ange du Seigneur survint devant eux et la gloire du Seigneur se mit à briller tout autour d'eux. Ils furent saisis d'une grande crainte. Verse 10. Mais l'ange leur dit, n'ayez pas peur car je vous annonce la bonne nouvelle d'une grande joie qui sera pour tout le peuple. 11. Aujourd'hui, dans la ville de David, il vous est né un sauveur qui est le Christ, le Seigneur. 12. Et ceci sera pour vous un signe. Vous trouverez un nouveau-né emmailloté et couché dans une mangeoire. 13. Et soudain, il se joignit à l'ange une multitude de l'armée céleste qui louait Dieu et disait, 14. Gloire à Dieu dans les lieux très hauts et sur la terre, paix parmi les humains en qui il prend plaisir. This is the word of the Lord. And now, let's welcome Dr. Gerber Shears. Well, I'm very, very glad to be here with you and uh, celebrate again Advent and Park Hill and just a great place to be. I, Sharon had been married for 53 years, and we've been through a whole season because Anytime you start a new marriage, one of the things you have to figure out is what will your Christmas traditions be? Well, that first year we were married, we were up in Denver, and our, our parents were in Albuquerque, and it actually was pretty easy because my parents and our family, we always did Christmas Eve, and that's when you open gifts. Sherry's family always did on Christmas morning, so that was simple. The next three years were simple because we left and went to the Philippines, and we couldn't do anything with him. And our, our older son was two months old when he left and David was born over there. But when he came back, what do you do? Because now grandkids are involved. And speaking as a grandpa, you know, but now my baby, David, is almost 51 years old and he's got two kids and Don's got two kids. And, but see those traditions change. So now Sherry and I are empty, mess, empty nesters, but there are some things that are always there. One of the things that's absolutely required for our Christmas is we watch It's a Wonderful Life. <laughs> required. <laughs> no question about it. Because that story done just after World War II and things were in such bad shape here in the United States and people were just wrestling with the impact of the war Jimmy Stewart, who's the star of the show, had been flying naval bombers over Europe and was pretty sure he never wanted to do acting again because of the trauma of the war. But Mr. Potter, the mean old banker, Lionel Barrymore, who's actually a great man, talked him into doing it. And now that is a story of incredible hope in very, very, very dark times. And we watch it every year, at least once. How many do that? I sense a need for repentance on the part of many of you. <laughs> Maybe a new commitment. Another thing we do every year is we watch uh, the Nativity story. Uh, Frank, or sorry, Mike Rich 
was one of the, is one of the best producers in Hollywood. He did six shows, six movies, all of which were incredibly successful, Secretariat, radio, things like that, and very, very strong Christian. And so his seventh film, he decided, I'm going to do what I want to do. So he did a Hollywood production of The Nativity Story. And it's incredibly well done. So if you've got a very faithful rendition of the birth of Jesus Christ, what rating do you think it's going to get in Rotten Tomatoes? 100 percent? 90 37.3 on Rotten Tomatoes. Which says Rotten Tomatoes is rotten? It's a great film. We watch it every year because it shows the context in which Jesus is born. It shows the incredible shame that Mary was going to do, Joseph's righteousness. It's a, just an incredible film. We watch it every year. Highly recommend it. But number one on our list, Charlie Brown Christmas. How many watch Charlie Brown Christmas at Chris? Okay, better, better, yeah. And that, I mean, how do things go at the Christmas pageant with Charlie Brown? Why does it go terrible? Because he's Charlie Brown, of course. <laughs> and in that moment of intense frustration there toward the end, doesn't anybody know why we're here? And Linus steps up. Little Linus, who's kind of forgetted, forgettable, stands up, walks out on stage, and quotes from memory the passage. Oh, it's not there yet. It will be. Luke chapter 2, and he quotes it as it has to be from King James, and you just heard it in French. This is what Linus says. And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. Angels said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, you shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was the angel, a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace, goodwill toward men. And then Linus says that famous line, That's what Chris is about, Charlie Brown. And the show writes up, and it ends up with all the cast walking out, including Pigpen with his cloud of dust, and they're all reciting this as they walk out into the world. That's what the angel's saying. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For unto you is born in this day, in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. That's the news of joy. That's the Advent blessing that we celebrate today in the second day of Advent, the day of joy. Now, I grew up in a, my very first day on, my very first Sunday on earth was at a church and I've been in church all my life. 
even when I kicked hard out of Christianity at 14, I was actually kicking out of fundamentalism. I thought I was kicking out of Christianity. And for four years, I was doing negative evangelism in my church, talking kids out of their faith quite successfully. Uh, and what I've been told, and been told since, that happiness and joy are completely different. And I beg to differ. Happiness and joy are pretty much the same thing. They're both words that describe what we translate as blessing or rejoice or joy or something like that. So I did a, I asked Dr. Google. I said, Dr. Google, what does happiness or joy mean? How do you get it? Well, I mean, the answer is really simple. Money. Right? Does money make you happy? Come on, does money make you happy? Say yes, of course it does. <laughs> of course it does. Yeah, of course. Well, what else makes you happy, Dr. Google? Uh, sex. You know, good sex is good. I highly recommend it, by the way, as a long-term married man. I define it a little differently than you see in the things. I see good sex as a pleasurable whole person experience that connect a husband and wife to express, confirm, and deepen their marital relationship. That's what good sex is. And I tell you, as a long-time married man, it's really good. It really is. Power. You look at the political power games that are going on all over the world right now. And people apparently are just obsessed with power. And of course, information. Because you can get the behind-the-scenes story on what really happened on that set with Alex Baldwin, then you can make the primetime news too. And look at those things. But being an old man and having hung around a lot of people over these years, what I find is that money, sex, power, and information are not reliable ways to happiness. Because I see people have all of those things and deep, deep despair and satisfaction and anxiety behind it. Well, maybe that's the way it is. I just met a couple here that are in psychology school. Uh, I teach at Western Seminary up in Portland, and we have a really good licensed professional counselor program. So I asked some psychologist friends. Actually, I did it via Dr. Google. Psychologically, what's the way to do it? Well, back in the day when I was in University of Mexico, we studied Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And probably some of you remember that. What's the top end of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Do you remember? Self-actualization. And see, psychologically, that is a way to happiness is autonomy or self-actualization. Feeling that your activities are self-chosen and self-endorsed is a way of happiness. If I can do what I want to do, if I'm free to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, but another way of happiness is the way of relatedness. A feeling that I have closeness with other people, a feeling that I have a love relationship with another person, but see, those are incompatible. Because if you're autonomous, you can do whatever you want, whatever you want it, and you're in relation with another person, then you're not free anymore to do whatever you want. Because if I do whatever I want without consideration of my pretty wife, Sherry, I violate that relationship. I can't have both autonomy in the psychological sense and relatedness. They're incompatible. 
and they're both ways of happiness according to psychology, and that's correct. In other words, what I call self-efficacy or competence, meaning I feel good about what I can do and feel that I'm able to do what I want to do, and I can do it effectively. And of course, foundationally is self-esteem. Do I have that stable sense of personal worthiness? Okay. I, as I said, I grew up in the church and there's a way of religion that leads to happiness, they're told, or joy. Obey the rules. Whatever they are, obey the rules so God will give me what I want. If I do what God commands me, then God is obligated to give me what I want. That's the way of the prosperity gospel. The trouble is it didn't work. I, another way to happiness is identify bad people so I can judge them. Have you ever experienced that? Have you ever experienced that? It's another way of happiness, apparently, in a lot of religious circles. Another thing is to look good, especially to me. The trouble is none of those work at all. So who's got the answer of how to be joyful or happy? Who? Jesus. Okay, let's look at what Jesus says, okay? Luke chapter 6. Not yet. Soon. There you go. Luke chapter 6, looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed or happy or joyful are those of you who are what? Happy or the poor? Fears of the kingdom of God. Okay, that's one. Second, blessed or happy are those who... You're supposed to say it. Blessed are those who... Hunger now, for you be satisfied. Blessed or happy are those who now, for you will laugh. Blessed or happy are those when people they exclude you and insult you? Like Jesus, are you kidding me? Reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because greater is your reward in heaven for that's how the ancestors treated the prophets. How many of you sign up for the Jesus gig now? What's the way of joy? What are the four secrets of joy for Jesus? Number one is what? Poor. Second, hungry. Third, weeping. Fourth, hated. And he goes on. But woe to you who are, for you received your comfort, woe to you who are now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone Tell me you're serious, Jesus. Tell me you're serious. I am joyful when I'm poor, hungry, weeping, and hated. See, I think what he's saying here is exactly the opposite of what the world says. 
because the world says you'll be happy if you have money, sex, power, information. And Jesus said, if that's what you live for, you will never find joy. Because it's not the way of Jesus. I think what Jesus is saying is when you live with and for him, you risk being poor, hungry, weeping, and hated, but you have something that's way better. Hmm. So I kept thinking. And one of the things I discovered is that Aristotle, the fourth century BC philosopher, had what he called the four levels of happiness. And I actually think that what he discovered through his philosophic reflection is exactly the same as what Jesus said with one variation I'll tell you about. So the first level of happiness, and I'll just, I'll just kind of put it in the context, and the context is the ice cream lover's way to happiness and joy. Okay, so number one level, I discover salt and straw. Now, I'm told after first service, you guys have salt and straw down here. How many have been? Repent and return. It's, I mean, when they came out with sea salt caramel ice cream, ugh, to die for. Well, maybe not to die for, but man. And then you look at their Halloween flavor and their Thanksgiving flavor, and you can have turkey and mashed potato and wine ice cream. Ack. Ice cream lovers, from a one is, I have exquisite salt straw ice cream and I can have my choice of flavors. It is amazing. Level one happiness is what? Food, water, shelter, and safety. How important are those? Well, frankly, try being happy without them. Those are really foundational. And in Bible, you find all of those saying. A good glass of wine leads to great joy, according to scripture. First level. Second level of happiness, according to Aristotle and the Bible, is when I discover not only can I enjoy exquisite ice cream, but if I go down to the shop and buy some equipment, I can make ice cream. And it's even better than salt and straw. Oh, man, this is the best ever because now I can make a homemade ice cream my own way of doing things and make it exactly the right recipe and all my friends come over and I'm able to give them ice cream and they say, oh, Gary, I love your ice cream. It's so good. And I feel happy. Right? Second level of happiness is personal significance, accomplishment, competence, and it's true, not only can I enjoy eating it, but I can enjoy making it and giving it to my friends. And they think, oh, Gary. Third level of happiness. I discovered that not only can I make ice cream, but I discovered this thing called Hope in San Diego. 
And if I join with this group of people that are humanitarian related, I could take ice cream to poor marginalized people who can't afford ice cream. And not only can I bring my own ice cream and delight them with a real true joy, I'm a part of a group of people that has this kind of mission to go to hurting and lost people and bring happiness and joy into their life. And there's a deeper level of happiness and joy. That's third level. That's the level of community involvement, loving others, belong to something bigger than me. It's not just that we're doing things, but we're a group of people are united together and around that. And it's an incredible level of happiness. What do we call that in Christianity? We call it the what? The body of Christ. Yeah, we call it community groups. I'm a part of something bigger than me that gives me meaning and direction and belonging, and that's a third level of happiness, but it's not the highest level. The highest level of happiness you're going to discover that there's a God who has designed a world where ice cream is possible. And I discovered the artistry not only in ice cream, but in sunsets and babies and jumping spiders. You're all excited about jumping spiders, right? Beautiful little things, amazing little animals. And I discovered this God who designed that. And more than that, and this is where I differ from Aristotle, because Aristotle said a sense of transcendence with the eternal, I'd say it's a sense of relatedness with the God of the universe who not only designs this universe to work in exquisitely marvelous ways, but also comes into this universe and cares for this universe, which can be really, really messed up. And that fourth level of happiness is when I'm related to the God of the universe and discover that he cares and that he cares about me and I can have a deeper love relationship with him, fourth level of happiness. And that's really good. Now, in my own story, I, when I think about this, I, about four months ago, I discovered that there was blood in my urine. Now, I'm a guy. And when I see blood in my urine, what do I do? I ignore it. Yeah. I ignore it. It'll be fine. I'm a guy. Confession. It's true. But a couple weeks later, there it is again. And three weeks after that, there it is again. And four weeks after there, there it is again. So I send this to my doctor, Dr. Rocksmith. His nurse calls me and goes through a whole inventory of things to try to figure out, you rule out certain things. And that led to taking a CAT scan, an abdominal CAT scan to see what's going on in my body. And uh, I teach classes. I'm a professor at Western Seminary and a number of leadership team here at, at uh, Park Hill have been in my classes and I have a very close relationship with them. I'm doing classes in Boise, Idaho I fly over there once a month. And I was there in my class three months ago, and halfway through the afternoon session, I said, hey guys, take a break. And as I stood up from the desk, my phone buzzed. I looked down and I saw in the caller ID, Kaiser Permanente. Oh, oh, what's this about? So I picked up the phone, hello, Dr. Walksmith. Gary, I need to give you the results of the CAT scan. Oh. 
He said, uh, I'll shorten the seven-minute conversation. He said, you have bladder cancer. I know nothing about bladder cancer, but just the C word sends a cold chill down my spine because I had melanoma, a little bump in my head that was surgically extracted six years ago, and they took out the downstream lymph node and discovered some melanoma there. So I've already had stage three melanoma, but surgically it was taken care of, and I have regular checkups, and there hasn't been anything with that. But bladder cancer? Yikes. And I'm trying to digest this new information. And he said, but we discovered something else too. Uh-oh, I said, what's that? Because the CAT scan went right up to the base of my chest, and he said, Gary, there's, there's also cancer in your lungs. There are a number of nodules in your lungs. <sighs> wow. So I walked around a little bit after Dr. Waksmith hung up, just trying to comprehend what I just heard. And then I sat back down with the class and taught Galatians for two more hours. Didn't say anything about it. I went over to Steve and Barb Walker's house. Steve co-teaches the class with me, long, long time friend, outstanding pastor and teacher. Stayed at their house, had supper with them, talked about life, didn't say anything to them because I'm still trying to ponder. And I realized the person I need to tell first is my pretty wife, Sherry, and she's back in Portland. So that night I went into the guest room there at Steve and Barb's house there in Boise. And I shut the door and I pondered and prayed. And I just listened to God and said, what do you want to say to me? Because I've had a rich relationship with God who regularly has, well, from time to time, but in epic ways, given me directions or encouragements or something, because God speaks. And in the, I didn't really hear anything that night. I went to sleep, and one of the things I discover is some of my best prayers happen while I'm asleep. And I actually wake up, and I find that I've been praying, and it's right there, and that happened. As I woke up several times in the night, then got up and had uh, breakfast Steve and went to the airport and flew home and told my pretty wife. And in that process, the words formed from the message God had given me. He said, this is not the end. Keep on with what you're doing. And what I do as a pastor of pastors and a professor of Western Seminary and a pastor who gets involved in some most difficult circumstances ever is I get to mentor people like Evan and Sandy and Scott and Jacob and Aaliyah and Bree and folk like that. These are all part of the Park Hill leadership team. I get to mentor people from a little more distance like Jason and Tanika who are just a marvelous couple. I just love seeing them. And of course, Ariel is the best ever. Yes, there she is. That's my star student right back there. Yeah, that's her. <laughs> And I got to know Ariel's dad back in Florida, and I get to mentor and be a pastoral resource to people like this. It's absolutely astonishing. And I get to work with people who are in the, dealing with the most ever kind of things, betrayal and abuse and such, and God said, keep doing that. It's in a context of cancer, unknown what that means. I... 
I find the presence of God. I find a word of God that's keep on with what you're doing. And in that context, I don't deny the cancer. Since then, I've, there's been a journey of discovery. And in fact, the nodules in my lung are melanoma. So stage four metastatic melanoma in my lungs. Since then, I've also discovered through PET scan and MRI that there are two nodules in my brain. And there's also another nodule probably in the liver right beside my gallbladder. I'm not quite sure what to do with that. And then there's the bladder cancer. The bladder cancer has been taken out surgically about three weeks ago. And uh, they tell me it's low grade and probably won't be any more problem. Just every six months, I will get an inside view of my bladder on a TV screen. I've already seen the inside of my bladder once, and I'm going to see it several more times, which is an interesting experience, to be sure. The melanoma, well, I had an infusion on Friday. Immunotherapy is now, they didn't exist six years ago, but the immunotherapy is often effective against that. And on the December 15th, they will use radiosurgery. The surgical knife will be a radioactive beam that will be very precisely aimed at these two nodules in my brain and the doctors are pretty sure they can zap it and it'll be gone. But I don't know what's gonna happen. Melanoma is a very aggressive, dangerous cancer, and immunotherapy can be effective, but it can be ineffective too. So what do I do in this context? The hardest thing ever was telling my adopted daughter and my non-legal daughter, both whom are haunted by death, that I've got cancer and it's melanoma stage four metastatic. It was bombing to both of them, but I can't not tell them. But I chose to do it in a context of personal relationship, deep love that I have for these two daughters, also my two sons and their daughter and their wives. But see what happens is, because I've got this word from God and I've got this long-term deep relationship with God, I can come with, with joy, even though I present circumstances are somewhat questioned because I've got the deep relationship with God. I've got a call from him that says, this is what I want you to do. And I take huge, huge joy in being able to work with people in the gifting that I've got. Because see, joy is not something that's dependent on money, sex, power, and information, joy comes out of, it. those are important, but that relationship with Jesus. So I look at Jesus, and he lived a rather difficult life, and shortly before he died, he gathered his disciples together in the upper room, and after he washed their feet, he had what we now call the upper room discourses in the Gospel of John, and in the Gospel of John chapter 15, Jesus said this to his disciples. He said, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Know what he says? If you keep my commands. So relationship with, with Jesus is like a relationship that I have with Sherry. It means that I adapt my life to support and encourage her. You remain in my love, just as I've kept my Father's command and remain in his love. Look what he says in verse 11 here. I've told you this so that my joy 
may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And then he comes back again. My command is this, love each other as I've loved you. That means be willing to give up things like food and wealth, connectedness, if need be, for the sake of Jesus. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. And long ago, you servants, because a servant does not know his master's business, instead I've called you friends for everything I learned from my father and made known to you. This is my command of one another. See, that's the way of joy. It's relatedness with Jesus where we join him in his mission and are willing to give up stage one, stage two happiness for the sake of following after Jesus, no matter where that may lead. I have been fascinated with the book of Ecclesiastes recently. It's a bizarre book. Vanity of vanity, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And one of the passages that struck me deeply as I was pondering this year just recently is this one. G-E-B, that's the Gary Everett Brashear's translation. There is a futility. I like that better than vanity. There is a futility that's done on earth. There, is, there are righteous people who get what the actions of the wicked deserve. And there are wicked people who get what the actions of the righteous deserves. We call it injustice. And we see it all the time in our world. I say this is futility. Because life is like that. But verse 15. In a context of injustice, in a context of violence, in a context of outrage, in a context of personal attack and slander, all of those are contemporary culture now as they were back in that century. The writer says this, I commend what? Joy. And see, a peace we can do in this context, because of the Holy Spirit working in us, and one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, first through the nine fruit of the Holy Spirit, is I can choose to keep in step with the Spirit, have him empower me, and I can choose joy. Now, that doesn't mean that I ignore the stuff that goes on. I certainly don't enjoy, I don't ignore injustice. I set myself to do justice where I can. I don't, in, I don't set, ignore all the violence that's going on in our world, the personal violence, the mockery, the slander, the canceling. I don't, I don't ignore cancer. But I can choose to center my life in joy. I can choose to focus my attention on the good, the right, the true, the beautiful, the real, as God defines it. But what do I do about the other stuff? What do I do about the violence? What do I do about the injustice? What do I do about cancer? What do I do about death? What do I do about abuse? And that's what we find in Ecclesiastes and Job and other books in the wisdom literature, in the Psalms especially, and that is lament. And see, those things, I've just 
working with all my students who is just haunted by the fact that a friend of hers had a little daughter named Sahara who just died at two years old. And she was telling me the picture of Sahara's mom bawling as she's holding the little baby as Sahara died. What do you do with that? And what you do is lament. And lament, here from, there's the next thing here, Annie Voskamp. Annie Voskamp writes this, true lament is the bold faith that trusts perfect love enough to feel and cry authentic. It's not about denying the feelings. It's not about denying the violence. It's not about denying the cancer. But rather, it's expressing them in confidence that our God hears and will act in a perfectly loving way. And see, when I think that we're choosing joy, it's not floating above the world in some sort of spiritual state. It's living full present in this world as Jesus did, coming into the place of all the brokenness and all the violence and all the stuff that's going on, but because God cares and is present and comes in this Advent season, I choose joy. And this is my word for Park Hill today, is you join me in whatever circumstance you're in, good or bad, happy or fearful, and choose joy. Father, thank you for loving us enough that you don't walk away from this world. You deeply care about it. You allow yourself to be hurt, betrayed, angered. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming and leaving the glories of heaven to come into the awfulness of the world and living in the very worst of it to bring your reality and your joy into that, that we can share in that. And pouring out the Holy Spirit, and we say, come Holy Spirit, bring your hope, your joy, your peace, your love, and we commit to walk with you and receive and live in these things and bring them to a world full of hurt and sin and despair and shame. We pray this blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.